right, while everybody's getting settled down, just a reminder, we're going to have communion this coming Sunday because the second Sunday of the month I will be in Israel, so we're going to have it this Sunday, and then um, I'll, I'll be leaving after church, I'll be here Sunday morning, and then after church, uh, taking off for Israel, uh, I'll be speaking here via virtual reality Tuesday night, and then Thursday and following, Ray Mondragon will be here, and he's finishing up today, in or tomorrow in Kiev, and uh, you will enjoy having Ray here. I have always gotten a lot out of whatever I have heard him, uh, whatever I've heard him teach. So, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can make sure that we are enjoying our ongoing walk with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, walking according to the Spirit in the light, if necessary, confessing sin in order to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. Before we begin, then I will open in prayer. Let's, let's pray. Oh, Father, it's a great privilege we come together tonight. We remember that we live in a country of freedom, a country based on laws, a country where there is not an arbitrariness to the application of laws, at least uh, not on, in a large way. Father, we're also reminded that there are many forces in this country, many organizations, many people that despise you, despise Christianity, despise the truth of your word have no respect for freedom. Father, we pray that you would be restraining this evil and that you would continue to raise up leaders, and especially in this year, this election year, that, that you would continue to raise up uh, men and women who will be elected to national and state and local offices that will stand firm for freedom and liberty and that we might continue to have the opportunity to teach your word, proclaim the gospel, and send out missionaries throughout the world. Father, we pray for us as a congregation that we might come to understand more fully what it means to be a local church and how we are to uh, love one another and serve one another. And Father, as we study this passage this evening, that our eyes may be open to the truth of your word and its significance for our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, and we are beginning a new verse in verse 10. In 1 Peter chapter 4, 
uh, starting in verse 7, there's a uh, bit of a transition that takes place as we're moving towards the conclusion of this epistle. And that conclusion begins uh, at the end of this, of this chapter when we get into uh, chapter 5. But in verse 7, Peter says the end of all things is near. The end of all things is near because when we're in the church age, it can end at any moment. That's called the imminent return of Christ in the rapture. It could return at any moment. And so the church age itself, because we're the church age, it's near the end. And so we know that that his return and then it's immediately followed by the tribulation and then after seven years, Christ returns. So the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. That is uh, the command. And then he goes on to there, from there saying, above all things have, and that's the verb. It's not a command here, but it is to have, to hold on to, or to continue to be fervent or passionate, not in an emotional sense, but passionate uh, with an intense fervor, having love for one another. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. We're not seeking to expose people's sins or to continue to hold them over their heads, but to uh, deal with them in grace, just as we pray and hope the Lord deals with us in grace, with our sins. And then in verse 9, which we studied last time, let me see, I have verse verse 8 here on the slide, and we talked about love and the importance of love, of Christian love, and that this is the mark of the disciple. Now, a disciple isn't the same as a believer. All disciples are believers, but not all believers are disciples. A believer is simply someone who is saved. He's trusted Christ as Savior, but a disciple is someone who recognizes that he's no longer uh, to live his life on his own, but he's been bought with a price and he's to serve the Lord with all of his being. And so he wants to be a dedicated student of the word. There are a lot of Christians who are just would rather be mediocre, blase believers who just get by than who understand their purpose to serve the Lord in this dispensation. And so love comes as a result of spiritual growth to be able to love one another in the way the scripture teaches that we are to love one another as Christ loved us. And then because of that, we are become known as his disciples. An application of that love is being hospitable to one another without complaint. Opening up our homes when people are traveling through, giving them meals, uh, going out to dinner, doing various things to help them uh, along the way and providing for them. And I pointed out last time this is not this is expected of leaders, but it is in this verse it is expected of every believer. Some time ago, I read an article by someone who said, "Why is so little expected of leaders?" And the point that he was making is every command that's given. And every uh, character qualification that's provided for in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 for the pastors and deacons and elders and bishops, 
are really expected of every single believer. It's not like these people are held to a higher standard. They're held to the same standard that every believer is to be held to. But in their case, they are to be uh, demonstrating this regularly in their life. So passages like 1 Timothy 3, uh, 3 2 and Titus 1 8 emphasize the importance of being uh, hospitable to those, uh, uh, that, excuse me, hospitality. This word philoxenos is related to leaders, the bishop, the elder, uh, the overseer in these two passages. And the idea that we're to do it without grumbling is to characterize every believer. Uh, according to Philippians 2.14, do all things without complaining and disputing. Now, that brings us to 1 Peter 4.10. 1 Peter 4.10 and 11 then talk about the role of gifted believers, and every believer is gifted. And so these two verses then talk about the use of that gift, and we're going to uh, take a couple of weeks, a couple of lessons to go through these uh, particular verses as it applies to the church. So what we see here in verses 10 and 11, let me read them first before we begin to uh, look at them. As each one, that is each believer, has received a gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do, do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All right. This verse begins and makes several important statements. As each one has received a gift... That's the starting point of this particular verse. And it says, it, it begins in the Greek with a comparison, just as. And so it's comparing every believer. And this applies just as each. So that emphasizes that each believer, once you trust in Christ as Savior, at that instant, one of the many things that God the Holy Spirit does for you is to give you a spiritual gift. Now, I'm going to have to talk a lot about trying to understand what spiritual gifts are in the next couple of lessons, but every believer has a gift, but you don't know what it is. And I've often used the analogy in terms of natural skills or talents, that at the moment that you are born physically, you have certain innate talents that are part of your uh, inheritance, part of your DNA, uh, part of your genetic makeup. You may have talents that are inclined toward music, toward athleticism, toward uh, intellectual skills. There's a lot of different talents and areas that are uh, distinctive among people just naturally. And so everybody's born that way. But that's a, just a potential. It's not doesn't become actual until you grow and you mature over the years. And those natural gifts and talents are developed. They are not instantaneous, except maybe in a few rare cases of exceptional genius. 
they have to you have to learn you have to be taught you have to develop and you don't know what they are you don't come with a, a little tag on your toe coming out of the womb saying musician artist mathematician scientist in fact you often find a lot of people getting into their 30s and 40s and maybe even their 60s and 70s trying to figure out what their niche is what their talent is and and some people have a difficult time with that i remember when i was in high school trying to figure out uh, things about uh, going to college and what areas uh, i should look at my parents were taking me to all these battery of exams and everything which all pointed out the same thing and i've always had a sneaking suspicion that they that they sort of pointed out what i thought i was going to do you know that it was you're sort of front loaded because you think you want to do this and so when you see certain options and questions you tend to choose those because that's what you're thinking at the time but five years later maybe it's something else but in the spiritual life, we receive a gift. And the word there that, uh, that we have there is an aorist passive indicative of lambano, which means to receive something. The passive indicates, in, in this sense, it's often referred to as a divine passive. Who is giving you something that you are receiving? And that is God. We receive it from God. We perform, we're in a passive tense, I mean, a passive voice, uh, we're accepting something, but who's performing that action of giving it to us? That's unstated, but in passages like that, it's assumed to be God, and so it's called the divine passive in, in some grammars. As each one, uh, each believer has received a gift, and this is the word charisma. And this is a word that's come over into English, and often the word doesn't reflect what the original Greek says. We talk about some people, you talk about some actors or actresses who have a, uh, have a certain uh, charisma or a certain presence. You talk about one group of Christians who emphasize the spiritual gifts, especially the sign gifts, such as tongues and healing, and they've co-opted this term, and they are called charismatics. And so this is a word that has come over into English, but the way it is used in the Greek text uh, is one that we need to take some time to think about and time to, under, uh, time to understand. It is a word that is not necessarily uh, a technical term. It's used some 17 times in the New Testament. But it doesn't always mean spiritual gift. In fact, you can only give it that meaning or assign that meaning to it in some context. But there are other contexts, as I'll show, where that isn't, isn't part of the meaning. Uh, so... What we see is that uh, each person's received this gift. And then the next word is really important. There's our active participle, and that it has, uh, it sort of it, it describes the purpose of this gift. It's the verb diakoneo, where we get our noun deacon from the di diakonos, which is the, the, the noun. 
And it has this idea of service. The, the root idea of diakonos is that uh, it referred to somebody who waited on tables, somebody who was a servant in a house, and that emphasis is on being a servant. Now, think about this contextually in this passage. Each one has received a gift, and we're to minister it to one another. That is in the context coming out of an emphasis on love for one another. And uh, we've done studies before showing the various um, various things that are to characterize believers in the body of Christ, that we're to serve one another, we're to love one another, we're to teach one another, we're to admonish one another. All of these different one another, we're to pray for one another, give thanks for one another, all these different things that are there in the Scripture. So this is uh, serving it, and there is the pronoun in the Greek that that it refers to this charisma. We are given it for the purpose of serving, and that brings out a really important aspect to this because in trying to understand what this means in terms of a spiritual gift, the way we often hear people, in fact, about 99% of the time that we hear people talk about spiritual gifts, it defines them as some sort of spiritually enhanced ability or power, something like that. Whereas if we take time to look at the context of Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 as well as here uh, in 1 Peter 4, it's not the emphasis isn't so much on the ability as it is the function. Now, you may think, well, that's splitting the baloney kind of thin or slicing the baloney kind of thin, but it's important because having an ability is sort of a passive thing. I can play the piano. I don't play the piano, but I can play the piano because I took lessons for 12 years growing up. But I don't ever play it anymore. So I have an ability, but I don't use it. The emphasis in all of these passages that talk about spiritual gifts is not on just possessing the gift or just having the ability. It's on using the ability to the body of Christ. Now that brings out something interesting because I've heard people over the years say, well, I have the gift of service and I use that, for example, at work. No, you don't. The work isn't the body of Christ. In a lot of places now, your workplace may be just a bunch of pagan unbelievers. You don't use your spiritual gift to serve the pagan world. You don't find that anywhere in Scripture. Every time you find it, you find this emphasis that the purpose of these abilities is to minister, to serve the body of Christ, to serve other believers within the framework of the local church. Now, this is a participle, and there's, it doesn't have an article, so that means it's, a, it's an adverbial participle, and there's different ways in which, an ad, in which adverbial participles are used, and this is a participle of purpose, So what Peter is saying here is, as each one has received a gift in order that they may use it to minister to one another. 
It's the purpose. The reason you're given the gift is to minister. And that brings out that important idea that it's not just a passive ability, but it's got a purpose to serve one another. And that means that, that, that you can't just sit in your shell. There's a lot of people I know that because of isolation, maybe they live in rural areas, sometimes they live in urban areas where there's very little Bible teaching, very little opportunity to be involved in a local church. I've often encouraged people to get involved in a local church, but there are some things that you can't put up with. I had a letter some years ago from a man who was in, I believe he was in Vermont, and he said, I really felt after listening to you that I needed to go and be involved in a local church. But there, he lived in a small town in Vermont. And he said, there wasn't a church in town that believed in the deity of Christ. So finally, I decided I couldn't take my children to a church that didn't believe in the deity of Christ. And that's absolutely true. Don't sacrifice key doctrines in order to just say you can be with other believers. I know of some other believers that I've had some time recently to uh, spend a little time with who are from Australia, and they're involved in an Episcopal church that's, you know, marginally acceptable, but it gives them an opportunity to minister to other believers, to help them understand the gospel, and to use their spiritual gifts. Everybody has to determine where they're where that borderline is. Some people want to draw it pretty pretty narrow and say, if you don't believe 99% of what I believe, then I'm not going to go to your church. Well, you know, I don't know anybody I agree with 99% anyway. Sometimes I don't agree with myself quite that much. I go back sometimes and read what I've taught, and I, well, I, I'm not sure I was right. You know, so we have to be careful. But everybody's different. Some people, as we've been studying about worship on Sunday morning, and I've been in a lot of different, you know me, I've been in a lot of different cross-cultural ministry situations from small young churches in Ukraine to older, uh, what we would call more fundamental Baptist almost in Ukraine, I've been in all kinds of different black churches and charismatic churches and everything. But if if I had to pick a church, for me, if they were into contemporary Christian worship, I couldn't do it. I've thought about this a lot over the years. That would be a, a, a line of demarcation because in my study of the philosophy that undergirds modern music, it's all paganism. It comes out of a pagan background. The philosophy of music is music. I don't, I'm not even talking about the words. And I can't honor and glorify God by singing music that has its roots in the human viewpoint culture of the world. We're to distance ourselves from the world. We're not to be conformed to the world. But we have to decide. Other people can say, well, I can put up with more of that than you can. Great. Go be warm and be filled and go with God. But, you know, we have to make those decisions. But we are to use our spiritual gifts to minister to the body of Christ, to other believers. So that's why it's been given to us. That's its purpose is to minister, to serve one another. And then the next phrase is as good stewards, as good 
stewards of the manifold grace of God. And the idea represented by good here is the idea of being responsible, being responsible and doing the job well. So the, a steward is a manager. That's the significance of that word. It's the word oikonomos. A form of that word is one we're familiar with that is translated dispensation or administration. It's a word that's used that we've been given certain, uh, whether it's money, often you hear stewardship sermons and they're all about responsibly using your money so you can give money to the church. But here we have the word used that God has given you a, a spiritual gift. He's given you a ministry. Every believer is given a ministry at the instant of their salvation. And that's why when you get into passages like Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, where it talks about uh, four different gifted men that are given to the church, you have apostles and prophets, those are uh, offices that are no longer held, no longer in effect, and then you have evangelists and pastors and teachers. That's a compound word there, pastor-teacher. Why are they given to the church? They're given to the church to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. See, that's what we see here is that the, the, your, every believer, each believer is given a charisma in order to minister to serve one another. Well, how are they going to do that? Well, they have to be equipped by the pastor. Well, how does that happen? It happens by teaching the Word. It takes us back to what we studied a couple of weeks ago in John chapter 21. When Jesus had this, uh, three times he asked Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, well, you know, Lord, and we know all the different synonyms that were used there, but each time the Lord ended up saying, if you love me, feed my sheep. So there, for a pastor to love his congregation, he is supposed to feed the sheep. That means to teach them the Word of God. It is through the Word of God. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 2, too, that we're to desire our hunger for the sincere milk of the word that we may grow by it. We grow by taking in the word. At the end of Second uh, Peter, Second Peter 3.18, he says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that the way in which a believer grows is to learn. He is to be taught. He is to be fed the word of God. He has to accumulate knowledge as he accumulates that knowledge, now he can choose to go one of two directions. He can either uh, blow up and become arrogant and self-important and go down a, a, a road of, of intellectual arrogance, or he uses it realizing that knowledge is not an end in itself, but it is to grow, to develop his relationship with the Lord and to serve the Lord, and then he is going to develop in humility. And as he grows and matures, his areas of strength in terms of the application of the word are going to become manifest. And we'll talk more about that as we go through this. But but you realize you've been given a ministry opportunity 
and, uh, and a, a potential from the instant of your spiritual birth. And so what we're to do is to manage that, to use it well in the Christian life. Now, that immediately brings a question up for a lot of people. I have no idea what my spiritual gift is. Well, I have some good news for you. You don't have to be able to identify your spiritual gift to be able to serve other people. And you'll serve them in the area of that spiritual gift. Even if you don't know what it is, you don't have to be able to say, well, I have this gift. If you, cause, because in, if you take, and we'll look at all the gifts, if you look at all the different areas of gifts that are mentioned, whether it's gifts of giving, gifts of administration, um, whether it is gifts of communication, teaching, evangelism, if you look at all of these different areas of giftedness, each of those areas is also uh, expected of every believer. I may not have the gift of giving, but I'm expected to give. You may not have the gift of teaching, but we're told to teach one another. So you're expected to be able to teach at some level, even if that's not the area of ministry that's been given to you. We are to uh, lead. That's a spiritual gift. And your area of leadership may just be as a father or as a mother or as a friend. And it may be very narrow. It may be leadership as a Sunday school class. It may be leadership in some very small area. But all of us are expected to lead in some area. But some are gifted in leadership ministry. So just because you you don't have, God hasn't given you that ministry doesn't mean you don't function in it or you can just claim uh, irresponsibility. Some people have a ministry of helps. They help other people in a lot of ways. And, you know, I think that's almost a catch-all of, of spiritual giftedness. You have people who um, have the gift of helps, and they may go, and they it may be combined with the gift of mercy. They go visit people in the hospital. They help them. They do different things to um, uh, make life easier for them. Uh, maybe you have the musical ability, and so that's your natural talent. But it works together with a spiritual ministry where you can use that natural talent to serve people through music. So there's a lot of different different ways. Some, of, some people have just great talents in the area of financial management. And you may be able to just serve one another by helping people who need to learn how to manage their financial resources so that they can uh, give in terms of responsible giving in terms of ministries supporting a local church or supporting missionaries so that's the idea is this idea of managing a resource that God has given you since the instant of salvation and the primary way you begin to develop it and manage it is to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ to grow and to mature in your understanding of scripture and so that then connects to this word, the manifold grace of God. This is the Greek word poikilos, which is came over into English 
in a way. It has the idea of something being many-colored or variegated or diversified. And so if you think about something that is polka-dotted, polka-dotted is dots of various colors. And that word polka doesn't come from something Polish. It comes from poikilas. That got brought over into English, and that's where that idea, you know, polka dot is something variegated dots. And so that's the idea here that God's grace has so many different dimensions. God's grace has so many different facets. And you think about the millions of different believers there are in the world, and no two are alike. No two teach the same way. No two have the same... Uh, abilities in terms of giving or in terms of leadership. Everyone is different, like snowflakes, except we don't want to apply that metaphor as it's being used today with the millennial generation being a bunch of winker beans and snowflakes. So uh, this is emphasizing the idea of uh, the diversity of God's grace. And the word for grace is the word charis in Greek, which is where we get the word charisma. It's rooted in the word for grace. It's an undeserved ministry, an undeserved ability to do that ministry in the body of Christ. So that brings us to just a basic summary of what this one verse teaches. And if we go into the next verse, just to give you a a preview of coming attractions, Peter sort of summarizes these ministries in two areas. He summarizes them in terms of communication gifts. Whoever speaks, it is to do so as one who is speaking. So it's a, these are communication ministries. And the second category he summarizes as whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified. Now, on Tuesday nights, we've been studying about worship and that we are to do everything in our life to the glory of God. And what does that word glory mean? It has the idea of that which is weighty, that which is important, that which is significant. So whenever we see that we're to do things to the glory of God, we're to do them in such a way that people can see that God is integral to what we are doing, and that it brings honor and respect to him, and it emphasizes the importance and centrality of God in our lives to do that which we are doing. That's what it means to glorify God. And so since these ministry abilities are given by God, they are to be used to bring glory uh, to God through Jesus Christ. So the first thing we saw is that each one means that each believer has received a gift. Now this brings up a question that often uh, often people ask is, are, are, are there more than one gift? Now in this passage, it would look like there was only one gift. Each person uh, has received an, uh, a gift. And the A there... Um, is sort of implied, but it's a singular noun, and so that would indicate one gift. But there are other passages that suggest that there are 
more than one gift. You look at the apostles. I believed each apostle had all of the gifts. They had the miraculous gifts, plus they had tremendous gifts of teaching, gifts of evangelism, gifts of prophecy. You can point out examples of all of those as you look, especially because we know more about Paul, especially in the life of Paul, but also to some degree in Peter and John. Those are the three that we know the most about. So I believe that that we have more than one gift. One may be dominant, another may be, may be less so, but they, they're blended together in our personality so that no two people with similar giftedness are going to manifest it the same way. And so that giftedness is a, is a ministry ability. So each one means that each believer uh, has received a gift. Second, we'll talk about the meaning of this word charisma. And as I pointed out, it is it, rooted in the meaning of charis, which means grace. It is a gracious ability. It is a gracious ministry. That I think ministry gets left out when we talk about gracious ability. Uh, it's a gracious ministry that God has given to each believer in order to serve him by serving the body of Christ. And so this word, charisma, or the charismata as it's used in some passages... Uh, specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, as well as in uh, Romans chapter 12, uh, emphasizes spiritual gifts in those passages. But it doesn't always mean that. It's not a technical term. It just means a grace gift. For example, in Romans 6.23, Paul says that the free gift of God is eternal life, in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the word there for free gift is the word charisma. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean spiritual gift. Now, and the reason I say that is because there are some people who will define charisma as spiritual gift, but it's just a gift in some, in some particular way. And so there it's just talking about the gift of eternal life. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when Peter is talking, I mean, Paul is talking about marriage and celibacy, he talks in terms, he states, each man has his own uh, gift from God. One in this manner, meaning celibacy, and one in another manner, meaning marriage. So he looks at celibacy as well as marriage, both using the word charisma. Well, that's not talking about it as a spiritual gift, and it's wrong to import that meaning because that's assuming uh, that charisma is a technical term. It's just a term for a grace gift, and there are different ways in which that word is used uh, in the Scripture. Let's uh, go ahead and leave First Peter for the time being, and let's go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. A familiar passage, but we're not going to the familiar part of 1, just the beginning. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, that's his, uh, that's how Christ called him and set him apart at his conversion to be an apostle, set apart, okay, so that through his apostolic gift and office, he is set apart 
for for the gospel of God. That's his ministry is ultimately the spread of the gospel. And I don't think as we study Romans that that simply means this is the minimum you need to understand and believe in order to get to heaven when you die. That's a narrow meaning of the word gospel, which means good news, but the broad meaning of gospel is to understand everything there is to understand who Jesus is. When we say Jesus, you have to believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That means you have to understand all Christology. You have to understand all the prophecy from the Old Testament as well as the incarnation and how it's manifest incarnation and how, what Jesus' rule, uh, future role and reign will be. So Jesus Christ isn't just talking about just a narrow snippet of what happened on Golgotha. It's talking about all that the second person, the person of the Trinity uh, is, all that is revealed about him in the Word. And so when we say Christ died for us, why did he need to die for us? Well, we have to have a complete understanding then of homardiology or the doctrines of sin. We have to understand uh, a lot about redemption and propitiation and reconciliation and justification and imputation, all of those things. But when we talk about the narrow gospel, we just have to understand basically that Jesus died on the cross to save us. He paid for our sins. By trusting in him, we have eternal life. After we're saved, then we start filling all that other stuff out. And that's what Paul does in Romans. Romans is all about the gospel, not the narrow gospel, but understanding all those other aspects and facets of the gospel. And so that is the context and that's why I'm, I'm emphasizing this, because when we get to the use of charisma, we need to understand how this fits um, fits into this particular uh, particular section. So he's called an apostle, set apart for the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. So it takes us all the way back to understanding all the prophecies related uh, to salvation. Uh, verse 4, the declaration of the Son of God with power um, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. All of these things are all part of emphasizing the gospel. And then in verse 8 he says, First I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. So now we're getting into uh, to testimony. Uh, of the of their their witness, and then in verse eight, always in my prayers making requests. Excuse me, verse ten, always in my prayers making requests. If perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. What's he going to do when he comes to them? That's the point I'm making. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some charisma to you. Now, a lot of people have gotten confused over that. What does he mean he's going to impart a spiritual gift to them? See, if you take charisma to mean spiritual gift, then that becomes confusing. If you understand that it just means some kind of gift, a grace gift, what is he imparting to them as we study Romans? Romans is all about understanding the broad gospel of Jesus Christ, who Jesus Christ is, why the incarnation, what he accomplished on the cross, 
and what that means for us in terms of our spiritual life, which is chapter 6 through 8, and in terms of our ministry to one another and uh, the application of that in 12 to 16. So when Paul says, I want to impart a charisma to you, he's talking about teaching them the Word of God and the, the whole range of Bible doctrine. So he's not using it there as a spiritual gift. So we've seen in Romans 6.23, it can't be a spiritual gift. We've seen here just talking about a generic gift. So that's the fundamental meaning of the word charisma. The third thing we saw is its emphasis on service, on ministry, that it is giftedness in an area of ministry, not just an ability to do something, but giftedness. It to do something, to serve in some capacity, and it emphasizes function over just a static potential. Fourth, these ministries are related to our responsible management of what God has graciously given us. It's it just it's stunning to think that God, at the instant of salvation, gave every one of us a ministry. Yet most Christians go through their life, they never understand that. They think of the ministry as something that they, that's what an ordained person does. But an ordained person is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So that the pastor's like a coach, and the congregation are like the players who get out on the field, and they engage in the game. But the pastor's not the one who gets out on the field. He is the equipper. He's the trainer. He's the one who teaches the congregation how to think and what to think and develop the skill set to be able to engage with the world and not to be conformed to the world. So these ministries are to be responsibly managed by each believer. Then the fifth thing we learned is that each believer receives at least one spiritual gift from the Holy Spirit. That's brought out in a second word that's used, pneumaticos, which relates to the fact that this is of the Spirit. That's emphasized a lot in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Romans 12 doesn't mention the Spirit, but 1 Corinthians 12 does, which makes gives us the basis for being able to connect the Spirit, even though he's not mentioned in Romans 12, uh, the other vocabulary is, and he distributes these gifts to each believer. That's part of his responsibility uh, within the Trinity. And therefore, all of us are to be ministering to the whole, that we have failed to grow. If you're a growing believer, you will eventually seek to serve in some capacity. And they're going to vary. Uh, so often when we watch football, your focus is on the quarterback, the running backs, the ends. But you've got a lot of other players. You've got your tackles and your guards, and you've got different players doing different things. And the quarterback's the sort of the head. He's the most visible one, but he can't do what he wants to do with the guards and tackles. And others are not doing what they do if the ends aren't. Um, running their patterns as they're supposed to, all of these different things. The whole team has to function as a team. That's the concept of the team. It's it's like the concept of the body that is the, the, the metaphor that's used 
in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. We're to minister to one another. We're members of each other. There is an interdependence and interconnectedness. And you have a hard time with that. I have a hard time with that because you're an American. And you're an American and you come out of a culture, of a worldly culture, that says that that you need to be able to do it yourself. It's called rugged individualism. Rugged individualism is not a biblical doctrine. Rugged individualism goes against the interdependence and interconnectedness of the body of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean you give up your personal volition, but we are to minister to one another. All of those phrases we see over and over again indicate this interdependence and interconnectedness in the body of Christ. We're not just a bunch of isolated atoms who are just randomly going through life together. We have all been brought together into the body of Christ, and we have to learn to function and to serve one another and to love one another in the midst of all of our failings and sins and all the problems that we have. And so if you look at a reasonably healthy family, and you see that when the kids really screw up, there is discipline, there are negative consequences. But when the parents have things resolved with the kids, when they think about the kids and they talk to their friends about the kids, they're talking about their accomplishments, not their failings. Like I said, this is talking about a healthy family. You have unhealthy families. And at some level, every family is unhealthy because we're all sinners. You know, sin put the dis in dysfunctional. And that's all it is. I mean, all this psychobabble is useless. We've got to get back to using terms like responsibility and sin. And we all have sin. And we let our sin nature get away from us. Then we're going to say things and write things that we shouldn't say and shouldn't write. But if you're a Christian, you understand that, yeah, we're all, we all go there because of our sin natures when they're out of control. And so we need to forgive one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, forgave us. That's another, that word for forgiveness in Ephesians 4, 24, I believe, is related to the same word. It's charizomai. It's a verb form based on grace. It's to be kind and gracious to people. because, And that connects back to what we read in verse 8, that we're to love one another because love covers a multitude of sins. That's grace. It's not excusing it. You know, when parents get together with some other parents, if you hear parents running down their kids and talking about all their failings, you know one thing, they don't know how to love their kids. Because true love covers. It's not excusing it. It's not acting as if it doesn't happen. It's going to deal with it in privacy so that those kids can grow and mature without having to deal with the exposure and without always being run down by by parents. But sadly, see, when the whole family breaks down, when people don't understand the Word of God anymore, then you see a societal breakdown, which is what we're having today. You know, we hear a lot of people talking about culture. We've got a lot of cultures. Every one of them's wrong because they're worldly cultures. They're not based on the Word of God. They're not based on divine viewpoint. Now, the heritage of this country, the heritage of most Western European culture, 
is more biblical than other cultures. It was never perfect. And to the degree that it wasn't perfect, it was just as evil as any other culture because it's that worldliness that makes it evil. But when people are growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and they're not being conformed to the world but being transformed by the renewing of their mind, they're not going to be perfect, but they're going to be able to forgive one another and work together and move forward and build something of significance. But when you take God out of the equation and you, take, you, you no longer have a basis for understanding love or for understanding grace, and so all relationships will break down, parental relationships, marital relationships, the, all the relationships within a family and then all the relationship within a culture just completely fragment until you're left with just everything on the brink of self-destruction, which is exactly where we are because we've taken the Word of God out of our culture. The Word of God is out of most churches because in most churches they only give lip service to the Bible. But most people are there for church. They think church, I remember going to my first church, I would hear people say, oh, if we could just get people into church, and I thought about that. I said, I've never heard that phrase before. And the way they use this, this phrase about talking about, we just need to get people into church. No, you need to get the Word of God into people. You don't need to get people into church. Because it's not just going to church that's going to help anybody. What helps people is to get the Word of God into them. And under the Spirit of God, it's going to transform their lives and transform their thinking. But if you don't get the Word of God into people, it doesn't matter how many people you get into church. Because what matters is the Word of God, and that's what transforms people. So, with all of that, let's start off with a little bit of an introduction to spiritual gifts. First of all, like with any, anything else that we do, we need to have uh, a definition. So, I didn't change the slide, so I took talent out in my notes. That should be a ministry or a ministry ability, we could make that one word, a ministry ability or aptitude that is sovereignly bestowed on every believer in the church age by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation for performing a particular service in and for the body of Christ. That function can't be divorced from what it, what it is. It is integrally related. We are given this aptitude, this charisma, this gift for the purpose of ministry to the body of Christ. Romans 12, 6 through 8, 1 Corinthians 12, the whole chapter, Ephesians 4, 11, 11 and 12, and Hebrews 2, 4. When we get into the biblical terms, just to introduce them, you have the phrase pneumaticone, which emphasizes the source and nature of the gift. Pneuma is the Greek word for spirit. Pneumaticone means of the spirit or that which is spiritual. So it's emphasizing the source of the gift is through God the Holy Spirit and it's related to the spiritual life of the believer. So that the believer that is growing and maturing, it's going to be manifested in his uh, service to the church. Now that can be prayer. It doesn't have to be visible service. He doesn't have to be teaching Sunday school or visibly giving to the church. 
It can be prayer. It can be somebody working behind the scenes. I remember when I was in ROTC, I don't know what the figures are today, but it was like for every two or three soldiers who were fighting on the front line, you needed uh, nine or ten who were handling all of the service and getting the ammunition to him, getting the food to him, taking care of him when he's wounded, all of these other things. So that the frontline troops are totally dependent on all of this provision, all this activity and all these other people that nobody ever talks about, nobody ever sees, but they do everything. It's just like this ministry. This ministry is remarkable. I stop and think about this all the time. We have so many people in this congregation who volunteer a lot of time to do a lot of different things. And if if they weren't doing that, nothing else would happen. People say, well, you know, you're the you're it. I'm not it. You know, I'm one person, but there's 30 people who make it possible for me to do what I do. And if it weren't for those 30 people, you know, one day I, th- I was thinking about recently, because we all know we've had a few funerals the last year. And I thought one time last year, I said, if the wrong, if the Lord takes the wrong, of course, you know, it wouldn't be the wrong p- p- three people if it were him. But if three people were taken, this church would just about be non-functional. Three or four people, because they do so much. And I don't know that we have the depth on the bench to replace them right off the bat. And that's the nature of the body of Christ. God will always provide. I'm not going down into some depression or anxiety or anything like that. It's just a recognition that there are so many people are key in making this ministry, enabling this ministry to function. And for that, we're grateful. But that's the importance of the body of Christ. It's a team activity. It's not just uh, not just one or two people who do it all. The word charisma emphasizes, as I've been teaching, the grace nature of these gifts and these ministries. They're not based on any merit. They're, sometimes they're related to your natural talents. Sometimes they're not related to your natural talents. I know people who can be good teachers in, their, in, this, in the secular world. They might teach school. They might be a professor in university. They can't teach the Bible. They can't communicate the Bible. They can't equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. They don't, they don't have that, that ministry of teaching. Sometimes they're combined. And then the third word that's critical is the word marismos, which is has to do with sometimes it's a division or separation, but it's the, 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 the idea that God, the Holy Spirit, distributes or apportions the gifts. And I think it affects every congregation, no matter how small you may be or how large you may be. God is going to provide the people who have the ministry ability to make it happen, whether it's 15 people or 50 people or 1,500 people, there's going to be the right mix there so that that body of believers can function. The third point is that some... Spiritual gifts are unique to the church age. Or excuse me. All spiritual gifts are unique to the church age. You have prophets. 
There was healing in the Old Testament. Those aren't spiritual gifts. Because they're not for the church age. The spiritual gifts that are described in Acts and the epistles in the New Testament are gifts that are distributed by God the Holy Spirit under the authority of Jesus Christ to the church. You didn't have the church in the Old Testament. You had Israel. They are supernatural abilities that are given for prophets and for uh, others in the Old Testament. They're not spiritual gifts. Don't confuse them with what you have in the New Testament because the New Testament is something distinct for the church. Okay, so you have these spiritual gifts that are unique to the church. They were never given prior to the day of Pentecost, and they're not going to be given after the rapture. When you have the two witnesses, they don't have spiritual gifts because they're not in the church. Okay, and there's a lot of theological error that's committed because there's a failure to draw that distinction between Israel and the church and what's going and similarity does not mean identity. There's indwelling of the spirit in the millennial kingdom. When you look at its description in the New Covenant passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, there are similarities to the indwelling of the Spirit today, but there are some significant differences, and it's the differences that matter. There was a wonderful musical back in the late 50s called Gigi. Maurice Chevalier, some of you remember him, and so it was all about a young girl and getting married and all of these other things. And they were talking about lovely young women, and he makes the famous line, Viva la différence. See, there are a lot of similarities between men and women, but let me tell you, it's the differences that make it fun. Okay? So it's the differences. Indwelling of the Spirit in the millennium, is part of God's plan for Israel under the new covenant. That is not the same. Don't confuse it. Many, many people do with the indwelling of the Spirit in the church age. So these gifts, spiritual gifts, are for the church age only. We have, um, under the fourth point, spiritual gifts are the direct result of the ascension of Christ. He ascended and gave gifts to men through God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit isn't functioning like that in the Old Testament. He's not going to function like that in the tribulation. So it is unique to the church age, and it is foundational for Christ in preparing his bride to rule and reign with him in the millennial kingdom. Okay, I think I'm going to stop there. And we'll come back next time and look at uh, some of these other points. Father, thank you for the opportunity to begin to look at spiritual gifts and how uh, you gifted every one of us with a ministry. And they may be a ministry that's more visual, less visual. It may be a ministry that involves communication. It may be a ministry that involves service. But we only activate those ministries as we grow and mature. And even if we can't sit down and say, well, this is my spiritual gift, as we mature, we will function in that spiritual gift as a result of just growing up. Just as we grow up physically, we eventually gravitate to areas where we are more competent than to areas where we're less competent. We may not ever really say, 
or be able to identify some great talent or ability that we have in terms of the working world, but we're able to do some things that we like to do because we manifest some competence in that area. Same thing's true in the spiritual life. So the issue is to grow and not to get all consumed with being able to name or identify the gift that you've given us. But you've given us the responsibility, the stewardship to minister to one another in a variety of capacities, a a manifold capacities, different, diverse capacities, all based on how you have uh, gifted us at our salvation. Help us to understand these things and desire to know your word, have a passion to know your word and to serve you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.